we will start on this short, succinct, and very vital chapter called Justice. Um, in a way, this, I mean, this is one of the shortest chapters in this book, and I think it's one of the most important and most difficult um, because of how much and how many ways we have of avoiding what she wants us to look at and practice with, which is what? Anger. Anger and all the various forms, um, hatred, um, she, she's got a list there, let me, depression, resentment, jealousy, backbiting, gossip, and so on, all the, and those are the uh, uh, short forms, I think, if you add on the forms in, in, in various public realms these days in, in the United States, not just these days, for the last 10, 15 years, in political levels, you could talk about anger and all sorts of ways people have of justifying and um, uh, poisoning themselves and others with it. Um, the underlying beliefs and judgments not only beliefs and judgments, but beliefs and judgments about past, beliefs and judgments about fixed permanent self, the beliefs and judgments about self and other um, that that are the basis of this anger, this um, judgment entangles us endlessly because these are the basic building blocks that practice encourages us to work with and that we seemingly most naturally but not at all naturally but seemingly most habitual believe are valid. So I don't want to say more because I think all of you have read this, and all of you probably have lots to say about it. Um, about this practice, as she puts it, that passeth all understanding. That must be some quote from a, uh, an old um, Bible of some, so, of some sort, in English, obviously. But I will stop here, and we can talk about what this radical practice and this radical expectation, which, of course, some of you are going to say is unrealistic and so forth, or have already said to me. So, anyone want to begin? When I was reading that on the third paragraph, it begins... Uh, for the psychologically mature person, yeah. I thought, wow, that sounds like a good thing, uh, being psychologically mature. Uh-huh. And, and then it seemed to end up with saying, well, that's not such a good thing after all. So uh-huh. I kind of wonder why why that person would be considered mature 
if it creates, uh, 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 you know, with, with anger, if, if it creates suffering for themselves or others. Well, you have to remember that Joko was saying this in the 80s or 90s, but what she's talking about is the seemingly mature person or the person who's seem who's mature in terms of various psychological um, approaches to life and psychological theories which justify and um, even encourage what she calls countering uh, aggression um, counter aggression which justifies anger self-righteousness as he, she puts it all those things that are thought of as ways to express yourself ways to not bottle up your upset or not put up with or whatever else so what she's saying is inherently those though though those approaches seem to allow one to release the bottled up um, tension and anger and um, ways that cause problems, really they perpetuate this, both in the person expressing that, in the person, in a sense, stewing in that counter-aggression, and it just creates all sorts of harm in the universe because it perpetuates the self-other point of view. It perpetuates the permanence of self of self and the permanence of other. uh, um, It perpetuates the, the attempt to fix, make fixed or make solid reality rather than seeing the ongoing changing. All of those is what... So when, we, when she says psychologically mature, it could have said for the seemingly psychologically mature... Or yeah, pers- well, maybe I misread it. Maybe there was a misprint. No. Maybe it should be immature or something no, like that. No, no, no. I, I Was think... she talking about Est or something like that? What? I think she was talking about Est in mm. that time. Well, I don't know if she was talking about Est. She could have been talking about any many forms of therapy. Um, you know, there were all, all sorts of therapies in, at those times. Rebirthing and, um, you know not holding in, um, you know, it used to be a big, a big, uh, what should I say, thing that you shouldn't hold in your anger, you should put it out on whoever, because if you hold it in, it poisons you, but if you put it out, that's good, and you get rid of it. Except, her, her point is, it's just the opposite. It just creates a, 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 a stew of anger that all of us, live in, and it makes you think that the anger and the basis of your beliefs about the anger are valid. That's the, one of the, one of the reasons, the, the poisonousness of this is one of the reasons why we, I've taken to encouraging us to do the Gatha of Atonement at the beginning of Sashin, because of how much we can 
carry this around and how much it could seep into our life in all sorts of ways. And that's the point she wants to make. Even though it's very radical, because it goes against all sorts of things, whether it's in terms of pushing down anger or spouting and encouraging anger. I mean, see, remember, she starts with the the person that insists, I never become angry. Um, Joko used to say, if you sit, if you're genuinely sitting for five or ten minutes and no anger arises, then you're not paying attention to what's going on for most of us. Um, because of how often, it might just be a little, a little upset, it might just be a little hint, a little, but anger is one of the fundamental toxins of life. And by that I mean it's something that comes up every time we want to push something away, we don't want things to be the way they are, and how often does that occur in our life? Very often. Whether it's Even it could just be in a mild form, we walk down the street and we see someone dressed in a certain way or looking a certain way with a hairstyle or tattooed or jewelry or piercings or you, you, whatever it is, how they're walking, how they're talking, and we've, we've got ideas. Now, maybe we don't get really angry about it, but we already jump up with a judgment almost automatically. I like it, I don't like it, he's so, she's thus. They're this. And that's what she wants to point to. I mean, that's why she when, when she says subsets of anger, that's what she's talking about. It's the whole self-other, whether it's anger or greed, those are the two fundamental ways we could look at what we do as we are alive in the universe. So, yeah, I mean, notice, um, let's see, the, the last full paragraph on page 53 is where she sort of picks up that, um, business about the, um, the, the psychological theories, the idea that our anger must be expressed for us to be healthy is no more than a fantasy. Um, and that was a, a big, what should I say, psychological um, theme in the 80s and 90s, which is probably when this article and this talk was given. I'm sure some of you remember that, or maybe not. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I'm glad you put it in that context, um, Elihu, because then, I mean, in the last, very last paragraph of the piece, she talks about let's not adopt some facile, narrowly psychological view of our lives. And I was sort of, I mean, I, you know, I understood that there are therapies that encourage you to express and stuff, but I wasn't really sure if that's what she was getting at when she said, some narrowly psychological view, but now I, I see that that is what she's talking about, and, yes. and that makes more sense. And Well, yeah, and also because 
of how much we use it to justify ourselves um, in doing things that are harmful to us and to others, that perpetuate dualism, perpetuate self-others, um, perpetuate fixed, permanent self um, perspectives and ways of functioning and blind us to the, in a way, what you could say, more radical but more, more fundamental from the point of view of Dharma or practice of non-self or, if we say it differently, of not being anywhere but right where we are, not believing our judgments to blind us from what this moment life is. And um, I I just want to get a clarification uh, or a reiteration really more like of uh, something that I noticed I was just almost automatically going to. So the thing about, uh, I think the phrase you used was fundamental toxin. Yes. Uh, the, th- the thing about judgment, uh, which sometimes I don't even realize is anger. I mean, of course, you're right, it is. But, you know, I, 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 as soon as I realize it, I just almost have a knee-jerk move to judging my judgment. <laughs> and I think, I think what I'm just trying to remind myself of is that you don't need to then go judge the judgment. Yes, that's a very good point. And, and that's why, of course, in practice, we just, whether it's noticing, whether it's labeling, or other sorts of practices, it's not a matter of judging the judgments, trying to get rid of the judgments, keeping track of which are good and which are bad. Any such things entangle us. Entangle us in self-other-centeredness. Um, and the consequence of that is exactly what she's addressing here. And the judgments, are there is no blame about the judgments. They just come and go. But if we hold them and, so to speak, pump them up and give them validity, which is what we can do, and what we can do almost automatically and habitually, but if and when we do that, then the consequence is what she's addressing. I thought it was so helpful when she said um, in the last full paragraph on the first page, Um, that we need to let these judgmental angry thoughts pass before our witnessing impersonal self. You know, to that point, I think it's just this question of not suppressing, not acting out, and not judging ourselves. But I thought that was such a nice way to put it, to let them pass before. Um, On 53, the last full paragraph on the page. Yeah. She says we need to let these judgments yeah. Yeah, pass before 
you know, that gave, that helped me a lot. That made, because, you know, usually it's kind of like, well, here's this aggression, and, you know, so I know I don't want to act on it. I know I, I don't want to suppress it. What to do? And um, so, um, so that's a nice um, way of, of, of thinking about it. Yeah. I like that. The last two words of that sentence, because it points to something very important, impersonal self. In a way, it's almost a contradiction, because the nature of the way most of us take self is that it's personal. But it's that very personal self is what justifies judgment and all the habits that spring from it. It so it, the the witnessing impersonal self is a nice way to remind us of what of what the practice of witnessing is when it occurs. So it's not about me thinking and keeping track of and then much less me using witnessing to add more judging. (laughs) You know, I'm going to witness, and at the end I will have kept track. I really had a lot of judgments there. Oh, I had much too much judgments. I mean, I, you know, and I can go on and on. But if that's what we do, then in a sense, and that is self-defeating, self-defeating. It defeats the practice because it insidiously and um, subterraneally brings in self-centeredness. That's why we sometimes use the form of having thought, da-da-da-da. Not I am having thought, but simply having thought and repeating the thought or judgment or whatever as a way to enable us to notice it and yet not get more entangled because of it, not use it to bring in sub rosa more judgment, more scoring, testing, grading ourselves or others. And this practice that she's talking about is very difficult. Difficult because we so much are habituated and used to and believe that what we need to do is are just the things that she tells us that are counterproductive and um, poisonous. That's what I thought of when I first read the, uh, in that in that last. Uh, uh, semi-paragraph where it says the best answer to injustice on page 53. Yes. It's not justice but compassion or love. That kind of reminded me of the Dharmapada where, where the, the Buddha says um, you cannot uh, dispel hate. Yes. Always one of the hardest things a person can learn. Yes. And 
it also seems so unnatural to us because we go the other direction. Um, we hate or blame hate. We hate hate or blame hate or um, use all sorts of other forms. And I don't even even if we say it, you know, it, it, it's to create good, it's to create justice, it's going to take care of things, etc. But we don't find that that's the results. I mean, you could try it, but look, does it work in your life? Does it work in your personal life with people? Does it work in your um, bigger life? Hello? Yeah, yeah, this is Debbie, and I've been struggling with that lately, too, because I've been to a lot of political rallies. Um, you know, Delinda and I went to D.C., and there was, if you even just looked at the posters, yes, there were some that were just positive, um, and there, there were some that were just terribly personal and negative, and... Um, you know, I was struggling with that um, about what to do, um, uh, and I also know a friend of ours whom you know who recently went to a grassroots ad- advocacy training in Chicago, and the, the whole training is be angry, um, you know, they're the enemy. I'm sure you might be familiar with this particular um, type of advocacy training. And, um, you know, every time we go to a rally, there's always the enemy. Um, and I, we have, you know, struggled to try to come up with a way where this isn't judgment and really underlying hate and, uh, yes. and um, be able to, in this environment, still do something but do it in a way that's not damaging, you know, our world, right. the universe, ourselves as we do this. Yes, and I think it's very much um, uh, something that seems to have gotten worse and worse. I would say, let's just go from the year 2000 to the present, that politics and and um, activism in, in all the various forms seems to have escalated more and more that we forget that we're one nation, one people, and not just in, in the nation, but we're, and instead we're, we're getting more and more into hatred, and it becomes politics is war by another name. Um, uh, to misquote a, a famous uh, um, uh, uh, statement that diplomacy is war by another name. Um, po- Diplomacy is between nations, but now we're, we're getting to the point when people justify hatred and they don't realize how much it eats away at their own life. Um, it, it poisons us. And, of course, it poisons what happens because back and forth it just creates such, such a willingness to distort in order to justify our hatred. And... Nothing good can come of it, because it it just will will snowball, and no matter who wins in whatever particular fight, then you're ready for the next fight and hatred. And um, 
Imagine if you lived that way in a family uh, situation. What would family events be like? What would family interactions be like? Some families do live that way, unfortunately. But the point is, it isn't fruitful for us in our practice, and it isn't fruitful for us as a group, as a nation, as people, as a life. It doesn't further compassion. Instead, it furthers anger and hatred. So, yes, yes, yes. I agree with you, Debbie. It's very hard. And and that's why, if you remember, well, you weren't there, but when I did the Martin Luther King talk, I mean, he specifically addresses that. And a number of talks we've talked about it. But you know, you could see Joko was addressing it then, because it's so fundamental, as as Ken's quote from the Dhammapada, um, which which I quoted along with uh, uh, Martin Luther King's uh, quotes. And it's very hard to get out of the cycle if you keep doing it. Because no matter who wins, no matter who loses, you end up pumping each other up with hatred. And then if you hate people, then what comes of that? If you hate others, you only hate yourself as well. Yeah, the question always is then what to do. Ah, that's, you're right. See, hatred and anger are, are easy choices because they, they feed our, the poisons that, that perpetuate self-centeredness and what they, they might not even be pragmatically the best ways, but they, they energize, um, self and other. They energize enemy and non-enemy. And then allies even become potentially enemies. And, uh, you know, that's where wars and fights and, you know, that, that's whether it happens now or it happens at other times. That's what a, that kind of politics leads to. Um, people doing crazy things. And if you look, as I said, if you look at it in terms of families, you see this sort of attitude just bleeds into all sorts of interactions. People are no longer connected to other people. They no longer see who they are and who they're meeting when they see other people. Instead, they only see enemies, those who agree, those who disagree, those who did this, those who will do that, those who I must hate, those who I must, etc., etc., You know, I, I remember that uh, Joko used to, there were two phrases I still keep in my mind. Um, what What is the next right thing? And what is the healing response here? And I think, Elihu, you might know who originated that last one, because I don't think it came from her. Or she borrowed it from someone else that was a student, I think. Yeah, I don't remember who now. It, it might come to me, but at this very moment it doesn't come to me. But 
That's a, I mean, those are very important points. What's the healing response? Certainly, Debbie, what you were bringing up, much of that is not a healing response. Healing has to do with health and wholeness and connectedness. If you're not doing that, then, then what are you doing? You know, unfortunately, that's what occurred before the election. Unfortunately, it's continuing with many people after the election. And it, it occurred, as I said, I mean, you could just, you could pick any point and see it, but it's been, it's been snowballing, in, I would say, in the last 16, 17 years to pick an arbitrary starting point. But you can go back further. It doesn't make a difference. Um, and that... And it that means if, it, one, uh, if one judges and uh-huh. says something uh, hurtful, then you know the other in this environment feels as if, to, in order to be strong, they've got to say a, a counter-judging thing. And you're right; it just spirals into um, judging after judging after judging because people think it doesn't come from a place of strength if they're not doing that. I think. I think. That's what people debate, um, how to be strong enough to stop something that truly might be unjust, not, you know, directing it against an individual, but something is unjust in terms of its impact on others. But how do you do that um, in a way that can move power um, and not... Uh, get caught up in in the spiral of negativity. Um, I guess it it really doesn't matter because ultimately it's what impact it has on you and then how you interact with others. So I guess that's all you can do. Yeah. Well, there's there's a quote um, which I heard attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, but it doesn't, I don't know, I, I don't think he's the original source he said, "If you uh, are just doing an eye for uh, an eye for an eye as your guidelines for actions and anger, you end up having a lot of blind people." Um, so, but but I, I think what's it's easy to talk about it on on a political and public discourse level right now because it's so much out there and has been so much out there for the last many years but it's important for us to see what is it we can do in each particular event whether Debbie like what Debbie was saying um, when she and Delinda were um, at various places or whether it's in, in your workplace or when you're with family members of course, the vitriol is different, hopefully much less in those other settings, but um, nevertheless, even just sitting by ourselves, we could notice how some of this kind of language seeps into our thinking and our um, uh, self-talk and our reaction. Um, as I said, if you're driving down the street or walking down the street and you notice yourself judging people that you see or if you're in the supermarket and judging them about 
what they you believe they're doing, how you believe they sh- are walking or talking or uh, um, dressed or whatever else. If you notice those judgments and just allow them and feed them, then you know you're poison. You're, it's like adding poison to your life. And if you add poison, the consequence is poison. So that right there is where we need to not indulge, or at least notice our indulging. That's what she's talking about. That's why she she um, uh, she says this is a radical perspective. I mean, her last two sentences, the radical dimension I speak of demands everything we are and have. See? It does, it's particularly when, I mean, it's one thing to notice your your judgments about someone's appearances where you have no idea what their actions are. But when someone says something that uh, it seems highly, highly likely is just not true, um, it you know, it's, there's a lot of judgment that comes up. So, so what's the healing response with that? See, that's you're right. There's all sorts of things, and of course, um, the the first question is it true? Is is in other words, because of how skewed everything we hear is, depending upon your sources, it's easy to to. Uh, focus on certain aspects and not other aspects on certain parts but not the larger whole but even even so what did how can we for a moment put ourselves in the other person's place and see what is it that they're trying to say not look at it from the outside but for a moment put ourselves in the inside it it's most important when we're with people look um, Debbie, you bring it up. You're in one of the roles of an attorney is negotiate. You don't negotiate with people who agree with you. You negotiate with people who disagree with you. So how could you be there with someone who disagrees with you and to hear what they're saying from their perspective so that you can then respond to what they're really Asking and saying. It doesn't mean agree, it doesn't mean give in, but respond having, in a sense, embraced for a moment the intimacy of what it is they're saying. It might be that they're full of anger or full of whatever. But how do I respond respond to that by hearing it? Or do I refuse to? And you can see the deadlocks that occur in politics and elsewhere when we refuse but we also see those in families and in individuals and in work settings and in other kinds of places that's why joko is uh, what should i say so so um uh strong about what she is uh, allowing or what she's saying is not fruitful and not doesn't result in 
beneficial outcomes. Because of the fact that it seems so natural to us to to, um, justify anger and fighting and so forth. And we could find all sorts of so-called justifications, justifications about how just it is what I'm saying and doing, and yet we can see how poisonous it is for us and for the universe that we live in, and that means all the people and beings that we encounter. And this isn't easy. And in fact, that's what Joskol says. It's not easy. <laughs> well, and, and I agree because at the end of the march in Washington, D.C., a lot of people put their signs up against the fence, which could clearly be seen from the White House. And I mean, some of them were about justice and some of them were such personal attacks um, on an individual that one could just only imagine what the reaction is going to be on the other side uh-huh. uh, when they're read, which then just continues the cycle unless yes. you can... Well, isn't it, isn't it true that, and, you know, stretching this political analogy, isn't it true that, that when we let, you know, our anger take the reins, take control, take the wheel, then how quickly does the all of a sudden become about process and contest and who's winning and who's losing and them against us and and we completely lose track of the original issue, the original problem and it just becomes about our anger and our uh, opposition to what we see as evil as opposed to what we believe ourselves to be as good and nothing ever gets settled because we just lose touch with original issue was and how to deal with that. What's the reality of it? What's the facts? What's really going on here? And I think we do that internally as well. You know, I think, you know, she kind of lays it on the line right off the bat with this chapter when she says, when she says anger is the underlying stratum of our lives. I mean, that's, that's pretty stark. And then you know, it's based on our judgments. Well, you know, Ken talked about the Dhammapada. I can bring up the skandhas and say, yes, this is an inherent quality aspect of being a human being. You know, we have discrimination. We make judgments. This is who we are. This is how we function. It's just when we aren't paying attention and let our anger take charge, then we lose touch with what is really going on in our lives, inside and outside. If, if we believe the, the solidity and truth of the judgments, as you say, or discriminations, then we can't heal. We can't see that we're interconnected, interbeing. Instead, it's us versus them. In a way... Yeah, in, not, in, not heal, but we wound others. Yeah. In a way... It's useful to, to look at would everything we want to say about someone else, we should look at 
would I be willing for someone to say that to, to me about me? Now, of course, you could say, well, I'm not like that. But you know what? I, 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 there's always places where similar things could be said, if not the same things about ourselves. Um, or, or different things. Or even someone say it, even though it's not true. What would it... So anything, when we say things about others, we, we should turn it around and say, would we be willing for them to say that about us? How would we be? So, but what I want to do is, is remind us that this, in a way, is a part one, because the next, the next talk, which is almost as short, um, you might even, if you did a word count, it might be the same word count, but I, I, it doesn't make a difference, is, is almost the next step of what this chapter is addressing. Um, so, I think this is good for us to reflect on both in, in the next week, both in terms of when we say things or when we hear others saying things like this, whether in our immediate presence or uh, various media, media, M-E-D-I-A, forms, whether TV, radio, internet, uh, newspapers, etc., where others do this same thing. And just to notice it, and then just to notice what it does to us if we participate in that. Um, whether agreeing with it, um, or, or whatever. Or, or allowing ourselves to be bathed by it, by staying with it over and over and over and over. Um, even some forms of so-called entertainment, satire, etc., which are justified as, or comedy as, that really seem to wallow in this sort of poisonous anger, hatred, um, as if that is something, though it allows us to to laugh and release some tension, it also maybe in a way seeps in and poisons us as well. That's in the Buddhist tradition, as you know, we talk about the three poisons, and anger is one of them, which is what she's talking about here. And by poison, we mean literally and, and figuratively. I mean, it seeps into us whether we, we hear it, whether we partake in it, whether we 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 chew it and um, repeat it. Um, there's something that po- it poisons, and unfortunately, the results of that poison is can be more violence, more anger, more hatred. Um, which you know, whether we win or lose, so-called, um, doesn't uh, doesn't serve healing. So. Okay, I, I don't want to say more because I want you all. There's some of you who haven't spoken who are welcome to bring something up if you want to. This is Cindy. I, I was just going to say um, I was uh, glad, Elihi, that you mentioned the the uh, quotes and the 
talk that you had of Martin Luther King because I was just amazed at the, uh, I'm not sure what to call it, maybe the generosity in his words. It was so, so different than the uh, sort of, uh, the way that, that people talk now about someone who's doing something they don't like. Mm-hmm. Um it just it, it felt like it was from a completely different a completely different time and place. Um, so thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay. We can end now. Um, but we're not really ending, we're just taking a, a break of practicing with this so that we can go to the next chapter which is called forgiveness Um, and in a way it's a continuation of this healing or radical dimension that Joko is wants us to reflect on and practice with so for next week we'll do that Um, yes I'm just thinking. We we are meeting next week and we will do that next week. So I hope you all are enjoying spring in whatever form it's appearing in your uh, environment. And uh, sometimes warmer, sometimes colder, some, but usually more and more sunlight, uh, at least when it isn't cloudy and rainy or snowy. So... <laughs> Have a good week, and we'll continue it next time. Thank you all. Good night. Thank you.